Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today on the podcast, I don't have a dedicated amateur runner. I have a dedicated professional runner. I have Ryan Vale. Ryan recently competed at the United States 15K Championship down in Gate River Run, Jacksonville, Florida, where he came in sixth place in a scorching 44 minutes and 11 seconds. So that's four minutes and 44 seconds a mile. Darn, that's fast. But as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, I normally don't have professionals on, but I do in this case because Ryan uh, is a special case, I would say. Uh, you know, he has a newborn at home, so uh, this current training cycle, he's had to uh, really alter his schedule and how he approaches running. Uh, he's still putting in the same kinds of workouts and the same uh, mileage, but he's doing it in a little bit of a different way and getting a little bit less sleep than he normally would have. Um, so we talk a lot about that. Ryan also lives his running life in a very public manner, unlike a lot of professional runners. Uh, and that's not a good or a bad thing, but he's, um, he's very open about what he does. So he puts out a weekly recap of his training uh, on his blog, which is in the show notes. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to follow along and not, not to compare it to, say, an amateur runner's um, training log, but just to see what someone at his level does day to day and week to week. Uh, so we also dive into that. And Ryan's also a coach with Run Doyen. And um, that's something that we talk about too, because when a professional is working with amateur runners, it, it is a kind of a unique situation. And especially for Ryan, now that he has a newborn at home, he can relate a little bit more to some of his amateur runners who are juggling the family life with the work life and the running as well. Um, and we talk about what pros know that amateurs uh, would be you know, well-served to know. So we, we dive into that as well and a whole host of other things like what he thinks about when he toes the line. Is he going for time? Is he competing with other people? Um, how... How aware is he of the other competitors that he's running against and so on and so forth. And I kind of, uh, I bust his chops a little bit. We talk about the V-dot calculator and how he's not quite a 10 on the 10 scale, which is hysterical considering that he's one of the best American runners um, out there. So I hope you like this podcast uh, with Ryan. And if you do, it would be great if you could rate this show on iTunes, uh, rate it and give it a review. I really appreciate it. It is a nice way to get it out there and also provides critical p- critical feedback for me. Sorry about that. Um, I, I chronicled a couple episodes ago how I got some feedback in a review and it made the podcast better. So thank you so much for doing that. But here's my interview with Ryan Vale. Hello, Ryan, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure, and I know you just had a uh, a very busy weekend, so I'm really excited to have you on this show. Uh, we just had the U.S. 15K Championships down at Gate River Run, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. First of all, congratulations, sixth place in 44-11. Yeah. Man, that is flying. Yeah, thank you very much. I've been down there. I think this is my fourth or fifth time down there, and so it was my second fastest time. And, uh, given the fact I'm in the middle of marathon training, I was really happy with it. So did you do anything to prepare specifically for this race? Like, did you taper at all like, the day or two before? Or how did you prepare to run this? And what mindset did you go into the race with? Uh, I took about two easy days before this. I, I tried to keep the volume pretty high the week before and did a real hard workout the Sunday before that race. So I was trying to go into it a little bit tired, but still um, give myself a bit of a break heading into it. 
Um, in terms of the actual race itself, there's nothing too specific. I've run it so many times that I kind of knew what to expect going into it. The real point was just to get a, a nice hard uh, effort in before before Boston. And when you th- say a nice hard effort, when you go into a race like that, do you just say, hey, I'm going to go as hard as I can in the moment? Or do you put a governor on yourself in terms of how hard you're willing to go? No, if I'm going to go to a race, I want to go as hard as I can. So there's definitely no governor. Um, The governor, I guess, would be kind of the fact that I went into it on tired legs. So it's one that I can't overcome during the race. But outside of that, um, if I'm not going to show up to a race and and half-ass it, I'm going to go for it. Now, when you're preparing for a race, see, it's it's very different than – if I was going to get ready for a race or if the other, you know, dedicated amateur runners who are listening to this are getting ready for a race where when you go into a steel, whether it's this one or any of these races that you're going into, how conscious are you of the other people you're going to be running against? Uh, very conscious. I, I know the, the start list going into it. Um, I know their strengths and weaknesses. Um, a lot of these guys I've run against so many times before, I don't have to do much in terms of, uh, background research, but I know who's going to be at the starting line well before I get there. And then when you're at the starting line, how, I guess when you're doing your race plan, how conscious are you of trying to make sure that you're near the front or getting the the place that you want to get in that particular race versus running for time? It really depends on the type of race. Since this was a U.S. championship, the time is really irrelevant. It's just about place here. And so I knew that those that front group of guys in that Colorado Springs Army team would probably take it out at one point, and I knew I wouldn't be quite ready to go with them. So when they did make their move, I tried to just keep even effort the best I could, and that meant you know running alone for a lot of the race. But I also think it meant it uh, it saved me from falling apart and, and and losing spots. So do you know the splits that you have during the race? Uh, we have they had a clock at every mile, so you can do the math in your head and, and at least get an approximation. Okay, so when you see the splits, does it have an effect on you, or is it more of just, you know, I think at this point you must be able to to have a pretty good gauge of how fast you're running anyway, even if you don't have a a clock or a watch on you. Exactly. Again, coming into this a little bit tired, I wasn't sure how it would feel anyway. So, I mean, the the splits, they have an effect, and I was looking more at the splits in a way to make sure I wasn't going too fast too early. Um, Because I knew I was fit enough to run kind of a threshold-type pace for this race. So I just wanted to make sure I didn't get, uh, you know, over my skis uh, in the first few miles of the race. So so, uh, sixth place, 44.11, which comes out to, I guess, four is the magic number here, four minutes and 44 seconds per mile. So how does that compare to what you're hoping to run at Boston? Uh, my goal at Boston, I mean, it's always hard to have a time goal at Boston, right? Because the, the weather can be so variable. Uh, my PR in the marathon is 4.59. Uh, and as of right now, I think I'm in shape to beat that. So it would be upper 450s for Boston, giving, uh, you know, if it was good weather. Okay. And have you run this uh, this 15K championship or any 15K prior to a marathon? No, actually, I've, I've, this will only be my second spring marathon. Normally, I've done a, a track season in the spring, so I'm actually pretty uh, unfamiliar with winter training uh, heading into a marathon season. Okay, so is it hard to make an apples-to-apples apples comparison from a fitness perspective? It is, definitely. Yeah, very different type of training. Normally, going into the 15K, I'll be coming off of U.S. cross-country, which is a 12K, and getting ready for the 10K on the track, so doing a lot of VO2 max, a lot of really – like shorter, harder mile repeats as opposed to the big volume I'm doing now. So 
um, it was a very difficult comparison. So overall, how how did you feel about the race? Were you happy with your performance? I was. I was a you know I had a really big week the week before, and I was felt tired all week, so I was a little bit concerned. And then the day of the race, I felt smooth and kind of felt like uh, um, kind of felt like my old self again, um, which was nice and refreshing. It wasn't uh, my best day there, but it wasn't very far off of it. So I was uh, really pleased with that. I think it's a great sign heading into Boston. It was funny. So before we start talking today, I actually popped your um, your running time into the V dot calculator that's on my phone. It's just there. <laughs> yeah. I, I use that every once in a while as a race predictor, or just to say, hey, you know, wonder what other people are doing, or you know, it, it's just kind of a handy thing for someone like me who doesn't have the experience to make apples to apples comparisons with other people. And I was laughing because if you if you type it in. From a uh, from the the V dot scale one to ten, ten being like the fittest you could possibly be, one being I guess the opposite. That you were actually you were actually a nine out of ten, Ryan. So you're you're not quite there okay. yet on the V dot scale. Yeah, that's well, good. I still got five more weeks, you know, before Boston, so that's all right. <laughs> but I'm dying. I'm looking at this like, all right, like this dude just ran 444 a mile for 15k <laughs> he's like not even not even a 10 out of 10 it, it, was, it was pretty humbling but it also kind of allowed me to look at that thing with a little bit uh i guess with a little bit more of a grain of salt than they have in the past because everyone's while look at it, like man like i think i'm running pretty well right now but i'm like down here in yeah. the forest <laughs> yeah exactly you definitely have to take those with a grain of salt especially when you know, that's considering if you're on a 15k on the track or something like that probably right it's uh, jacksonville it's warm it's humid uh, it's a hilly course, so you got to take everything into account when you when you try to look at those uh, calculators. Yeah, and so with that all being said, you getting ready for this race had a new wrinkle in it, not just in terms of you running a, a spring marathon, which you usually don't do, but you got a little one at home now. How how did that affect the training? Oh, uh, it's been uh, it's been very different. Uh, it was uh, Oliver was born on uh, December fourteenth, and um, I think that the best sleep I've had since he was born was. Uh, a couple nights in the hotel in Jacksonville here, so I think the the sleep side is is the most uh, the most challenging part, but it's been a ton of fun. So did uh, did the family go down with you, or you was that a solo trip? That was a solo trip. Uh, I think for at least for now, the the race trips will be solo trips, just uh, just for my my sleep aspect. Oh, I can believe it. So what's the what's the average night sleep for you, say over the past month? Uh, it, it's been before a big workout. There's been a few times where I've gone to the guest room and slept a, a full night. But outside of that, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be in bed for a good eight or nine hours, but it's, uh, you know, the feeding's still about every two hours. So it's a, it's a much interrupted eight or nine hours. <laughs> See, my kids are going to be three and six, uh, in the coming month. So it's, it's been a while since I've gone through that cycle. And you're right. They can certainly be draining for, for both people, both the, the husband and the wife in this situation. And do you feel like you're able to get more naps in or, or are you not able to kind of get the recovery that maybe you would have gotten in previous cycles? I think I'm lacking it a little bit. Um, you know, in the past I've, slept nine hours almost every night uh, and napped in the day while my wife's been at work. So I'm definitely getting less sleep than I would like. But at the same time, it's also made me a little bit tougher. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's one of those things that uh, before before a race, you think, oh, I didn't get my nine hours. This race isn't going to go well. And now I'm just like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> no big deal. I've done this for you know three months at this point. So I think uh, it's at least kind of shaken some of that um, uh that thought off that you have to, everything has to be perfect for things to go well because training has still been going very well. Oh, that's good to hear. And was Oliver a surprise or was this something that you were planning on doing? 
Uh, this was a plan, yeah. So no, no surprise there. Uh, you, you never know exactly what you know when the month is going to have, but um, it's yeah. You can't when we start trying, you can't plan like, oh, I'm going to run Boston, so we we can't do this now. It's you just got to you know <laughs> work around no, that for sure. And for you guys, did you do you have to take your career into account when you make those sorts of family decisions, or was it something that for you and your you know for you and your wife, they just was uh, hey, this is why we got married, and this, it will just happen when it happens. Uh, no, you definitely have to take that into account. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 32 next week. So it's not like we, you know, rushed to any kind of rash decision here. It was something that was well thought out. And, uh, again, with her having a normal full-time job, it's going to be when she does start going back to work, at least part-time, it's going to be me getting up a little bit earlier for my training, you know, taking care of him midday and then doing my, my second run, um, later in the evening. So we're going to try to manage that the best we can without childcare. And it was something that was definitely talked about, uh, well in advance of, of going through this. So are you going to be doing the uh, the running stroller at all? Uh, I don't think so, but I'm not sure yet. I haven't totally decided on that. Um, maybe for that secondary run, I can I can consider it. Uh, I live you know in in the city of Portland, so I feel a little bit. I feel like I almost get hit every other second running through town, <laughs> so I feel a little bit weird running with the stroller through here. But if I if I could take it to an actual bike path or something, I wouldn't be opposed to a shorter run with it. Right. And you know, now that you're also, you know, first of all, I know you're part of the Run Doyen group, which is uh, something that came online a couple months ago, which is very exciting. But when did, is that your first time coaching or when did you get into coaching? I started coaching, I think it was, uh, it would have been 2011. Okay. Um, that I started prevail coaching. So I've been coaching online since 2011. Now, how has, this time of your life with having Oliver and uh, even before he was born and your wife was, you know, getting ready to give birth, how has that affected your ability to, to connect with some of your athletes? Uh, actually, that, that part's been the easiest transition. I mean, they've had to be a little bit, especially the first month or so, uh, a little bit patient with me. And when I get back to him, I just kind of have to push it off to the evening a little bit. But I mean, it, it's all been online so far. So honestly, that's that's been the easiest aspect of this. Right. And just in terms of, you know, kind of like going through something that maybe they're going through. Right. Sure. Yeah, that's like, right. yeah. like they might be like, hey, I got four kids. I don't know. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, yeah man, now, now I know exactly what you're talking about when you're like, hey, man, I'm, yeah. I'm a little tired here. Yeah. And I'm still not even close to that level because I'm, I'm so amazed sometimes at what my athletes can do, because the, the people I'm coaching are, um, you know, I'm not coaching anyone who is who is uh, elite by a certain measure, but they all have jobs. They almost all have families. So they're working, you know, nine to 12 hours a day and have families and are training for a marathon. Um, so I, I can start to dabble a bit on the family side, but honestly, this is still more impressive than, than what I do myself. So what do the amateurs that you coach, especially ones that are kind of just entering their coaching relationship with you, what are some of the things that they tend to get wrong that professional runners like yourself just kind of like have ingrained in you uh, from kind of a much earlier time in your life? I think they look at a training plan um, that's designed for somebody that has all day to train and recover, and they get frustrated that they can't pull that off. And so I think you have to dial things back and be a little bit more realistic about what you can fit into your daily schedule. And you also have to get a lot more specific about what's important and what's not important. You know, if you have a limited amount of time, you don't need to do maybe 45 minutes of, uh, you know, dynamic stretching. Maybe you just get your run in. Um, so I think you have to, you have to focus your time a, a lot more specifically and kind of cut out the extras sometimes. 
Yeah, and how do you feel like amateur runners, because this is something that I struggle with in terms of like play, kind of like preparing for the long term versus the short term. Like for me, especially when I didn't have a coach, I felt like I was always like kind of preparing season to season instead of like building year after year and kind of the, the positive benefits of taking that long-term approach as opposed to like, Hey man, I got a 5k in six weeks. So let's just like burn it up and get ready. Yeah. And that was my, one of my biggest challenges early on coaching is uh, they, when they start paying you, they want a result and they want it quickly. Um, and so to try to convince them that that's not the, the right uh, approach is very difficult. And it's hard for my end to even, uh, instill that or even want to instill that in them. Um, you know, as a high school athlete, as a college athlete, for me, uh, it was in my coach's best interest to really, you know, labor it out and take it slow and just, you know, have that fourth year of college be your, um, peak season. And that's not the case when it comes to private coaching. Um, so I don't have a great answer for that other than saying, um, I really try to hammer to them that we're not going to even shoot for a PR this year. We're going to adjust to the new type of training and we're really going to, you know, look at the next two, three, four years of your, uh, your running career if you want to take this seriously. So you actually had a high school coach that took the long-term approach with you? I did. I was actually pretty fortunate. I had someone who was really invested in the program and saw my talent and really, um, you know, really took it slow with me. That's interesting because I feel like you hear a lot of times, not just with uh, with running either. I think you hear it a lot with baseball, especially with pitchers, where you see the same sort of thing where a high school coach may kind of press too hard, too fast with athletes to try to get that short-term success under the guise of like, hey, you're doing this for the team. And then, you know, you, there could be some negative negative repercussions in the long term. And sometimes, as you know, like sometimes you see – you know, the top 20 at Foot Locker might not be the top 20 All-Americans three years later. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and I don't think, uh, you know, my coach hadn't had anyone quite as talented as me when I came through. So I think that helped uh, his mindset a little bit. Um, but he'd also been coaching for 40 years. And so I think he was just able to kind of step back and see the bigger picture. But that's definitely a big challenge um, with high school coaches. And it can be in college, too. I mean, there's guys that try to wring everything they can out of, uh, you know, new college athletes to get those, you know, extra two points at the big 12 champs. Um, and so, uh, I, I think it takes a really special type of person and coach to, um, to really instill that in you, even though the results are going to be pushed back later and you never know if the results are going to come either. It's the hard part is, uh, you know, you can get those two points out of them today. Um, you don't know if they're going to be healthy and in the same you know mindset in two years from now. So I, it's, it's a, it's a tough spot to be in as a coach and the athlete. And you mentioned that your high school coach, you know, saw the talent that you had and was able to kind of, you know, kind of play the long game with you. And when did you get to the realization? When did you get to the point where you were aware that you might have a professional running career ahead of you? That took quite a while. In high school, I really I didn't enjoy the running part. I was uh, I played football in the fall. I wrestled in the in the winter, did track in the spring. And my original reason for track was to just stay in shape for football. Um, and so I, I found that it took me a while to find that I even had a talent for it. Um, and then slowly cut away the football and the wrestling and just focused on running. And that, at that point it was just, my motivation was getting a scholarship. <laughs> my parents hadn't saved any money for college. And I was like, this seems like a pretty good way to get school paid for. Um, and so it really wasn't until my very last year of college that I even considered, uh, the thought of running professionally, not because I, um, didn't love it and didn't want to keep doing it. I just didn't even, I didn't know much about the professional running world, which most people don't. It's a, it's, it's kind of a tough world to navigate to be able to make a living. 
So were you, was it your junior year that you started running full-time in high school? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, see, I say that, but then as you know, like with wrestling, I mean, shoot, that's like, it's like half that sport is cardio. Yeah. No, I, I think wrestling, honestly, I almost wish I would have kept doing that, uh, you know, the, those other two years and football was definitely the right, right thing to stop. But wrestling, I think was actually pretty complimentary to what I was doing. So because you were doing these sports that are very, very anaerobic, do you gravitate more towards some of like the anaerobic training even now in your running career? Or is that something that's kind of like, you know, ancient history? I think that's pretty ancient history now, just just because I'm getting uh, older and, and with the uh, type of events that I'm doing now, I think that's a little bit gone. I think the uh, my gravity towards that kind of sport was more on the wrestling side, more that kind of individual aspect of it, just kind of every day you're testing yourself um, sort of thing. Okay, so obviously there's a pretty strong correlation between that and what you're doing now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, now, especially because I don't have a team at the moment, um, or I haven't for a long time, uh, I train almost exclusively by myself. And so it's uh, every day is kind of I'm waking up and, and testing myself and um, without a coach or any other teammates kind of looking over me and making sure I'm doing the right thing. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a lonely, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, it's an impassioned drive. So how much of your motivation when you're training is internal versus external? If you had to like put on a hundred point scale, like how much would you put towards internal motivation in terms of getting better and you're internally focused and external being, you know, you want to achieve, you know, the best possible race result and, or you have certain people in mind that you want to eclipse. I think that's kind of changed over time as well. I'd say before it was probably 80, 20, uh, in terms of external, uh, and now it's probably swapped the other way around. I don't, I don't get on the, uh, you know, the running blogs and like the let's run stuff very much anymore. I've, I care a lot less now about what people think of me. And it's been more just about my own personal, you know, struggle and, and, and trying to do the best I can for myself. So I think that's been kind of a transition and, um, part of that's just, you know, getting more mature, um, as you, um, get older and, and spend a lot of time in the sport. So I'd say right now it's 80%, um, internal motivation. And is part of that too, because you've established yourself versus maybe earlier in your career, you're trying to get a footing and show people what you're capable of. It's definitely part of it, but I mean, I still, I still feel deep down that I've, you know, I mean, I haven't accomplished nearly what some other American distance runners have accomplished. So I know, I have a very long way to go. I think it's more uh, understanding um, my limitations and uh, knowing, you know, where I where I think I can go. I think it's taking a realistic approach and just uh, again developing as a person a little bit. Now, how how do you how do you determine your outermost limitations? Like, how, how you know, for someone like you who's getting so close to what your body is capable of doing, where do you know? I mean, how do you decide where where the where that end is? Well, with my coach, I had a, I had a streak of eleven years with uh, PRs from my college coach, and so with that, you just kind of say, I want to get that next point one percent. So every year, I was I was you know PRing by a few seconds in the ten k, and so you just look at that and say, I want to get a tiny bit better, and so you you just take it in very incremental um, segments. Uh, and then in 2015, I had uh, a pretty serious injury that, you know, kind of spun me down a pattern of about a year and a half plus of injuries that kind of put a stopper in that. So I've had to kind of reevaluate that a little bit. But 
it's all about taking it that 1% at a time. You can't say, I want to be a 205 marathoner when you're a 210 marathoner. When you're a 210 marathoner, you want to be a 209 marathoner, and you have to take it one step at a time from there. And can you have both things in your head at the same time? Like, can you be like, all right, I'm going to take it step by step, but I have an ultimate goal of this other thing? Like, and like when I say that, I don't just mean you in particular, but also the athletes that you're coaching. Absolutely. I mean, like if you're in high school, you should want to say, I want to make the Olympics someday. But you also have to say, I need to PR in 3K uh, by five seconds, or I need to win my um, high school conference this year. Uh, you, you should absolutely have the, the bigger overall goals. Um I think you just you need to temper them a bit, though, and really focus on the that next one that's right in front of you. And in terms of your training, going from like say like reaching ninety nine percent of your ability to getting to like ninety nine point five percent of your ability, what was the what were some of the things that you had to do to get those little fractions of an improvement? Was it was it you know altering your training? Was it nutrition? Was it some of like doing strength things? What were some of the things over the past couple of years that you incorporated in your training that kind of kind of are helping get helping you get to the next level? I've definitely tried to take the the, the nutrition side and the strength side more seriously, um, and I think that's been helpful. But the overall premise is still um, the same. Like I mentioned before, it's consistency. Uh, it's been the fact that I've been under the same coach for, uh, was it 2018 now? So for 14 years now. Um, and so consistency is the biggest key. Uh, so not jumping from training plan to training plan, uh, not just doing whatever's, you know, <laughs> the, the coolest thing to do right now in terms of training. That's number one is just being consistent and at least in one thing in your running career, which might be volume or a certain type of workout or something like that. But of course, you know, nutrition and strength to, you, you can, those are one of the few things you can kind of dial in when you feel like you've maxed out your running capacity, but I still think consistency is the biggest key. And then a lot of this is very personalized for someone's body and what they've done over the course of a year. But how do you approach like a rest period or kind of a break in your schedule that allows your body to recoup? Is that something that you, that you actively do proactively, or is that something that's kind of reactive? Like you're, you're noticing what's going on with your body and you have to start dialing it back. Uh, I, I kind of plan things out in terms of uh, my marathon schedule. Um, so after a marathon, I'll take uh, usually two weeks off minimum uh, from running, and uh, I'll specifically plan a trip for that time period so that I'm not sitting here twiddling my thumbs and you know getting itchy to get out the door. And if we do a trip like that, we'll be backpacking or hiking or something like that somewhere. Um, so you know, recovery after a race, I think it's really important just to take yourself out of your normal elements so that you're not uh, uh, jumping back in, you know, before you should be. So, but, so obviously when you take a two week break, it's not as if you're going to completely lose your fitness. You know, I think about say someone like Mark Allen, um, you know, 20 years ago when he was dominating um, Ironman, he would take a full six week break after, yeah. after Kona, which is, you know, for a professional athlete is an absolute eternity. Um, you know, to the point where like you basically completely lose, not completely, but you lose a lot of the fitness that you've built up. So for you, why is the two week break, um, I guess the optimal time limit for you? It just seems to be the right amount of time to make sure that uh, the soreness is gone. Like I, I always feel like I can run five days after a marathon, but, uh, just to make it's, it's an injury prevention, um, you know, type to that. And when I say two weeks that my trip might be a month plus. And so when I, come back, my first day is a 30-minute run. So 
in terms of a break from my full training schedule, it's probably more like the six week range because I slowly build back into it. And so for me, going for a 30 minute run two weeks later doesn't really feel like work or a part of training. It's more just kind of uh, knocking the rust off a little bit. And when you're taking that break, do you eat any differently? I mean, you're known for high <laughs> mileage weeks. So if you're dialing it back to like 30 minute runs, um, you know, you're obviously going to be burning a lot less calories than you normally would. So how do you approach the nutrition during that time? Well, luckily we were normally doing some backpacking or hiking, but, uh, I definitely let myself put on a few pounds during that time. Like, uh, I mean, I, I dial up the, uh, the burgers and the beer, uh, quite a bit during those weeks. It's a, it's a full on break. Oh, see, now, now you're speaking my language, Ryan. I can appreciate that, especially the burgers part. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's, uh, that, that's my time to, to just do whatever, whatever I want. Oh, that's fantastic. I was talking to Jen Ryans a couple months ago and she was always laughing about how she would take that two week break and it was just donuts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a donut fan, but I'm kind of on the same page. I can do burgers for breakfast, lunch, and dinner or beer for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No, oh, there you go. See, I like, I like how you're thinking now. Um, all right. So you got Boston Marathon coming up. So for you, what does the next couple of weeks look like in terms of trying to make sure that you're at your peak and then dialing it back for the start of the race? Yeah. So with this, uh, having just done the Gate River Run, it kind of puts, uh, you know, makes it a little bit odd in terms of how you, how you kind of try to peak for this. So I'm going to try to go back up for about two weeks now, back to my peak mileage and then have three weeks of tapering, um, heading into Boston. So. I'm going to take no no workouts midweek this week just to recover from the race, get ready for another big long run this weekend, and um, and then I'll have uh, another four weeks to um, to train for Boston. So, what are some of your favorite marathon prep workouts? Uh, my my favorite and least favorite at the same time, I think, is uh, I mean, we just call it the the tempo run tempo, which would be doing a warm up and then doing a, a four mile tempo at around threshold pace, so around half marathon pace, and then a 10 mile run at kind of a moderate pace and then another four mile tempo at that half marathon pace and then a cool down. Um, and so it, it can be anything from 22 to 26 miles, uh, total during that workout and eight miles of that quite a bit faster than marathon pace. And how many times will you run 20 plus miles in this, not a single day, cause obviously you'll be doing doubles, but it's in yeah. a single, in a single run. Um, I'm doing it right now every week, uh, every weekend I'll do, anything from 20 to 25, maybe 26. Um, so once a week for basically the whole 12 weeks of my, my marathon block. I know a lot of people will go with the uh, kind of 10-day segment, but that's really hard, especially with the people that I coach. Um, you can't do a you, – you just can't sacrifice three hours on a Wednesday <laughs> for most people. Um, so I'm kind of on that same schedule of, uh, of Sunday running right now. Now, when you do your 20 milers, do you fuel during the, during the run exactly like you would fuel during the race? And I say that in terms of like, how do you prepare to fuel during the marathon? Mm. I do that exactly. I uh, actually drop bottles. Uh, my, my usual course around here that I train on, I'll, I'll go drive around. It's a 12 and a half mile loop and I'll drop bottles every, uh, every 5k. Um, and then have to drive around and pick them up afterwards. And I'll put the exact ratio that I plan to use on race day in there. Oh, okay. And what, what do you have for race day? Uh, I keep it pretty simple. I just put like a power bar gel into my water. Um, and so that has the electrolytes, the sugar, the caffeine. Um, and so I put about one, one gel to about 400 milliliters of water. And then I'll take about 250 milliliters of water every, every 5K. God, how much is 400 milliliters? I, I feel like so much an idiot. <laughs> how uh, much so is it? 
the 250 is about a cup, so it's a little bit less than two cups. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. So I'll, I'll be taking basically every bottle I take is um, a little over half a gel. Now, do you fuel during other runs during the week? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I'll feel, I, I will feel during workouts sometimes if it's a longer workout, like a, you know, a hard session. Um, but that's, that's pretty rare. So I really just keep it for the long runs. So how long have you had your fueling dialed in for, or are you still kind of tinkering now and then? I haven't tinkered much. I've, I've thought about, uh, changing things up a little bit, but as of right now, um, I've used the same strategy since day one, just, uh, kind of mixing the gel in the water and it seemed to work. So it's been the same since my first marathon in 2012. Wow, man. That's pretty lucky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. I mean, you always hear about some people like having like just issues trying to figure that out. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is just, you know, test everything out in training and not just once, but multiple times, um, just to make sure your stomach's going to react in the right way. And I did that for 12 weeks before my first marathon and, you know, I never had any, uh, digestion issues. So I was like, well, that seems good enough for me. And so I think the marathon is, it's mostly about, uh, you know, averting risk. And so if it's, if it hasn't messed me up then it's, I think it's doing things right. All right. So what flavor, what flavor, uh, gel are you going with? I go with either the tangerine or the, uh, double latte, just because those are the only two that have the, uh, um, 50 milligrams of caffeine. <laughs> yeah. I always go with the caffeine ones too. I'm right with you on that one. I don't, I don't, I don't care about the flavor really so much. It's more, it's more of a business decision there. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Especially if you're watering it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't taste like much. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. So getting ready for Boston, this will be your first Boston marathon. So what are you doing to prepare just from a logistical standpoint in terms of like getting ready for the weekend of like where you're staying, eating, you know, preparing for the course, all that stuff. Uh, so from the biggest thing for me is trying to prepare for the course. Um, I think kind of like New York, it's a, it's a hilly course. Um, it's a tough course, obviously studying the course in terms of where to make your moves. Um, but I've been changing my, uh, some of my tempo runs and intervals, um, to do them on hilly paved loops. Uh, cause it's not just the uphills. You have to learn how to run those downhills as well. Uh, and learn how, how fast you can go and how much you can beat your quads up and still be able to continue. Um, so that's been the biggest thing in terms of training, uh, logistics. I'm pretty fortunate that they're, uh, you know, the Boston field is flying me out there and, and putting me in the, the meat hotel and, and all that stuff. So I've got the logistics side kind of, um, covered for me on that, on that end. No, that's nice. But when you have, they have it covered for you, is it something that like, because it's your first time, do you feel like you're like, I guess not second guessing, but you know, is it hard to trust somebody implicitly with, you know, something that's kind of like pretty high stakes for you or is, or are you such a pro at this point, you know, that like, Hey, they got it down. I don't have to worry about this. With another race, it would be concerning for sure. But Boston is just, I mean, they, they definitely know what they're doing. And I know so many people that have been in, in my position and running Boston before. And so I have no, no concerns whatsoever that they're going to take really good care of us and make sure they're at the start line at the, at the right time. And I think that's the, the biggest thing, no matter what happens outside of that, whether it's food, hotel, whatever, as long as you're at the start line before the gun goes off, then, you know, you'll, you'll work it out. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they definitely have the, that long history. And everyone who comes on this podcast who's run Boston Marathon says that that's been their favorite race, and they always point to the crowd. 
like just the crowd yeah. experience that they've that they've had at that race. So obviously, since you haven't done Boston, what's the best crowd experience that you've had at a race? Uh, New York for sure. Just uh, all the boroughs completely full of people, no matter where you are in the race. Uh, and you know, it's it's an early morning race. It's usually cold. People out there yelling and screaming for you. So I, I expect nothing less um, from Boston. And how much do you communicate with the other runners during a marathon? That depends on the race. You know, if you're, it depends on the strategy as well. Um, I know that uh, Boston in the past, when, when Meb uh, won the race, that there was some communication with the other runners, and they talked about kind of a strategy to try to break the uh, the, the Kenyans and Ethiopians in the race. Um, and so that can happen sometimes, um, but it really just depends on the day and, and the race and depends who's in the race. You know, it's, I go to some races where I know everyone in the race uh, on a pretty personal level, and so you're going to talk several times during it in other races where I know them but don't know them that well, so you're not going to have any kind of conversation. Right, and I was talking to a guy, Tyler Underwood, who ran at 217, 218 at, uh, at CIM. And he was saying that he was he was surprised that in the first half of the race, like everyone was super chatty because they had a big group of like 35 guys. We were just like, we're just talking like just like it was not that it was a training run per se, but that it was a more conversation than he expected. Um, and I was yeah. shocked to hear that because like, shoot, like I'll talk at marathon pace. But like for me, the marathon is about like finishing. Like there's no time involved. You know, like I might have going there with a, some sort of time goal, but usually um, I'm so far away from actually reaching it that I can just kind of relax and start talking to people. Um, Have you ever had that experience where it felt like you were kind of on the pace that you wanted to run and then all of a sudden you're near people that you like and you can kind of like, you know, you know, just kind of check in with people? Yeah. the I mean, in the marathon, it's a lot easier because you should be kind of in a a zone where you can talk for um, at least the first half of the race. But uh, the biggest thing for me has been um, cross country uh, in college and then at world, I've been to five world cross country championships. And so when you are out there with kind of team USA um, and you're trying to kind of navigate the situation, it's a really crowded field. I've definitely had conversations with people in those races, um, either about strategy or just, you know, motivating each other. And even if you're, you're so tired, you're just kind of like coughing something out. Um, you know, you, you still do it. And that feels really good for both of you. You can kind of do that and sort of have that, um, collective experience during the race. Right. And I remember specific- – oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, keep going, keep going. I'm sorry. I remember specifically my first kind of breakout cross-country race in college. Uh, my redshirt freshman year, we were running regionals and um, had been not ranked very well during the season, had kind of a rough year. In this race, we all just kind of felt great. We are just kind of flowing um, and just kind of looking over at one of my teammates because we knew we had already won the race even though there was, you know, 2K to go in a 10K – and just giving them a high five, you know, during the middle of the race. And so there's moments like that that are um, you can kind of uh, go above the pain a little bit and, and just kind of have this uh, collective experience. I think that's that's really cool. Yeah, and for you, have you ever had to kind of do the opposite in terms of get above the pain, but just from a purely internal and uh, in kind of internal motivation where – you know, what race for you do you feel like you really kind of overcame the biggest challenge internally, whether it's mental, emotion, emotional, or physical, and kind of come out the other side and was really proud of your effort? Yeah, I think uh, you know, pretty much every marathon the last 10K feels that way, um, that you're definitely internalized. Uh, you're in your own, own little world of pain that uh, nobody else is experiencing, and you can't really talk to people about it. But I think um, for me – 
I'll pick this one out just because it was a, a big turnaround in my um, in my running career. It was my my freshman year of college running the um, USA Cross Country Championships and having a really rough early track season going into that. Uh, my first year, kind of adjusting to the training, um, being you know really scared because all the best runners were there, um, and just you know letting myself get into the race and with okay to go. So the last lap of the race, you know, finding out that I was actually in contention to make the world cross country team as a junior um, and having my coach scream at me, how bad can you hurt for two minutes? Uh, you know, for the last 800 of the race um, was the hardest two minutes of my life. And I <laughs> barely crossed the finish line. Um, but that was the, the day that I gained enough confidence to really start taking it seriously in college and, and make that next step and believe in myself that I could be on the world stage. Now, how do you kind of impart that knowledge in some of the people that you're coaching now, especially when you work remotely with them? I mean, are you, do you feel like you see potential in your athletes that they may fail to recognize themselves? Yeah. And that's the toughest part about doing the remote coaching. If it was up to me, I would be there in person, you know, holding a stopwatch. That's what I want to do eventually is, but it, you know, with my schedule, I just can't at this point. And so that's, the most challenging part is, you know, that people always say you can't teach that and you can't, but you can try to guide people to sort of understand that and find that in, in themselves. And a lot of it is sort of analyzing their training, analyzing their, um, you know, their PRs at certain distances and saying like, man, you, you're capable of more than this. I know you are. I can see this, you know, just in your times. Um, and again, it's much harder not, you know, sitting there in person and watching them. But I think, um, just doing your best to make them you know, believe in themselves and know they can achieve more at, 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 you know, at a realistic level. That's great. So if someone wants um, to learn more about your coaching, where should they, uh, where should they go? Uh, right now, you go to, to uh, rundoyen.com. So it says run D O Y E N.com. And I think one of the best parts about following your progress, Ryan, and as you know, you hear, hear about this all the time, I'm sure. So I try not to, to, to talk about it too much on this podcast, um, is that you are very open about your training. So if anyone who's listening to this wants to know more about Ryan, he details his weekly, uh, his weekly training is very open about a lot of things at ryanvale.blogspot.com. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Yeah, my pleasure, and good luck in Boston. Thank you.